Hello, dear listener. It's Monday. Means it must be time for the Religious Studies Project. I'm David Robertson. And I'm Christopher Carter, and we're brought to you as ever by the British Association for the Study of Religions and the North American Association for the Study of Religions. Two very good associations for the study of religions, I think you'll agree. Absolutely. With bells on. Indeed. I'm going to tell you what the interview is because... This week and next week, they are interviews that Chris did. Yeah, sorry about that, listeners. You'll have to... Well, actually, you shouldn't be hearing too much from me, because both interviewees um, carry it themselves. Well, that's you doing your job as an interviewer very well, Chris. (laughs) Sheer professionalism. (laughs) This one I'm very pleased to bring you, which was um, jumped off the keynote from the BASR uh, conference this year, and it's with Martin Stringer. The topic is researching religious diversity. So it's over to Chris and Martin. We're recording today at the University of Wolverhampton at the British Association for the Study of Religions annual conference on a theme, religion, religions beyond the textbook. And particularly in the context of Wolverhampton, a topic that comes to mind is religious diversity. What is religious diversity? Why might we as scholars be interested in it? And how might we go about researching it, whatever it may be? I'm joined today to discuss these questions by Professor Martin Stringer, who is no stranger to the Religious Studies Project, having previously appeared in back in May 2013, speaking with David on the topic of situational belief. So first of all, welcome back, Martin. Thank you very much. We're delighted to have you. Good Um, to be here. Martin delivered the keynote um, at the conference last night and is currently serving as Pro Vice Chancellor Brackets Academic at Swansea University (laughs) in the UK and was formerly Head of Theology and Religion at the University of Birmingham. Martin's trained as a social anthropologist and his research is focused on Christian groups in the UK and diversity among inner city communities and his theoretical approach is to use anthropological methods of ethnography in detailed and extended studies of real-life situations where he believes religion can be most fruitfully understood. So you're clearly interested in this area. Very much so. And uh, publications of particular relevance to this interview would be um, Discourses on Religious Diversity, Explorations in an Urban Ecology, published in 2013, and the ubiquitous contemporary Western ethnography and the definition of religion. Yep. Let's get cracking. Thank you. Before we even talk about religious diversity, what what are we meaning by diversity here? I think what we're meaning is uh, recognizing there's been significant changes uh, in society that have perhaps taken us a bit beyond where we were in the sort of sixties and seventies and eighties when. Diversity was largely understood as sort of multiculturalism, um, sort of ethnic-based, and in the UK particularly, was that stage was based largely on sort of Commonwealth countries coming in. Uh, a lot of what I've been doing builds on the work of Steve Vertevec and the idea of super diversity, and he was writing about the period from about sort of mid 1990s onwards, the Yugoslav War. following on, when there's been a very clear sense that migration has been happening across the world. Mm -hmm. So people are coming from many different places, not just the old Commonwealth, but across 
uh, too many other different places. People are just moving. And that means you're getting very mixed communities. The example that we always use, um, I've been part of the uh, re- Institute for Research into Superdiversity at Birmingham University, and the example that's used there is Hansworth, which is an area between Wolverhampton and Birmingham, um, where the GP uh, doctors' surgeries, there's six of them in the neighbourhood, and on their um, lists of patients, there's over 170 different nationalities within one neighbourhood. And that means you get the diversity of nationalities, but inevitably you get diversity of ethnicity, you get diversity of legal status, you get diversity of language, mm. and of course you get diversity of religion. Yeah. And it, it just all piles in. You can't do it in one dimension. Mm. So the concept of super diversity kind of takes us beyond that notion of you've maybe got um, a, a local indigenous community and two or three other sort of migrant incoming communities it, it moves beyond that it's just yeah diversity it is, is it is yeah um susan wessendorf uses the term sort of common diversity mm-hmm. in those kinds of neighborhoods it is just the nature of the society that you're living in so everybody next door neighbors all the way down the street everybody is different mm-hmm. um and what the super diversity argument is sort of developing is that actually there's something qualitatively different mm. about those kind of neighbourhoods from the neighbourhoods that you sort of mentioned where there is a sort of small amount of diversity going mm. through. It, it changes the nature of what's happening. And that's what I've been sort of researching amongst other things. Wonderful. There's two directions I could go here. I'm going to go with the... Um, so obviously, research into um, understanding situations of diversity, religious diversity, it's going to have, there's a lot of political utility, let's say, uh, to understanding uh, such communities uh, as such situations. Um, So apart from claiming to be interested in it because the government is interested in it, why might we as researchers who are notionally above such things? uh, I'm not sure that we are above such things. We might come back to that one. Um, I think... I mean, the obvious answer to that question is that that's the reality that we are living in. Mm. Um, and you know, even if you take the last few years and the movements of people across the Mediterranean, this isn't a situation that's going to disappear. Um, it is something that is moving from a few small neighbourhoods. You, you can talk about the whole of London yeah. as super diverse, yeah. the whole of Birmingham and the West Midlands as super diverse if you want to sort of pursue it in those kind of ways. It is the context in which religion works today. Um, And there is a great difference between religions that, or the way religion functions, where there is a majority of a population that shares the same religion. Um, Spark Brook might be an example in Birmingham that is majority Muslim. And, you know, the way people behave with each other, the assumptions they make about what other people know Mm. is different from the kind of society where actually everybody you meet is going to have a different set of understandings. And you've got to work within that kind of framework. It's going to change the way in which not just we understand religion, but 
if you take from the sort of lived religion perspective, it changes the way in which people perform and live their religions on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. So you've described quite a complex situation there already. Yep. Um, and the sort of novice researcher wanting to go in to research all this, the, the, their the approach might be, oh, let's find a few communities and work yep. with them, but then you're going to end up with just ethnographies Please, or details so of, of those communities. Yeah. So, so let's preach for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> How might one go about right. doing researching religious diversity? I think one of the things, I mean, one of the things I was realised when I started to work in this area. I began to work in this area because it was something, I was actually working with the churches and it just became increasingly part of the dialogue and the discourse and the conversations that I was having. So I just, you know, I wanted to explore it further. But you've then got to decide, it is a complex situation. What is it? What are the questions? Which is the population you are actually interested in? And I think, you know, these days to do a complete study of diversity even in a neighbourhood, can't be done by one person. So you've got to make the decision, are you going to work with specific religious communities and therefore sort of see how things have changed and their nature and the way they interact in this context with others? Are you going to look at uh, processes such as interreligious relations and the way in which that has been transformed by these kind of contexts? Are you going to look at things like education, schools, uh, health services, and the impact this has on them? You know, what is your perspective? Yeah. What is it that you really want to look at? And that's going to then determine where you go. Mm. What I was interested in, again, it came from the fact that I was hearing the conversations already, was the way in which within a city such as Birmingham, this changing context has changed the way not just the religious people, but more interestingly the non-religious or the people who haven't got an affiliation talk about religion and talk about religious diversity. Um, you know, there is a lot of interest in the management of religious diversity, but that tends to assume religious diversity is a problem or an issue of the religions. Yeah. But if you're managing religious diversity, you've actually got to take account of the fact that, you know, 60-70% of the population of your city actually isn't affiliated. Or might well, be affiliated, affiliated in nominal. Nominally yeah. um, and they've got a conversation. And actually, in terms of the political debate, the way in which people talk, the assumptions they're making, you've got to hear them, you've got to listen to them. Mm-hmm. And that's what I started. I mean, that, that's yeah. where I my in, yeah. intro into this debate. And in the, the lucky situation, in a sense, not lucky, obviously, with <laughs> years of, um, but you were building upon um, decades um, of yep. research in Birmingham and lots of research students and research projects building up to this then uh, yep. monograph um, on discourse and religious diversity. diversity. Yes. Um, and you describe a narrative process of you know, just listening Sneak. to what's going on. Yep. Um, it's recognising that what I'm interested in, uh, in this particular case, is the public discourse, is the way people, unprovoked, talk about religion mm. and religious diversity. 
So that is a case, you know, I've lived in the city 23 years. You spend time, you recognise that if you, if you do spend time on the buses, yeah. if you do spend time in the shopping centres, if you're working within and walking around a neighbourhood, you actually hear conversations, you hear people commenting on things that are happening. And it's, at one level, it's a very superficial set of discourses because, you know, they're throwaway remarks. Yeah. They're, you know, they're not considered in that sense. But that's why I'm being clear. This is public. Yeah. This is what people feel they are able to talk about yeah. in the public sphere. In, in a sense, it's what um, Gerd Bowman would refer to as a dominant discourse. It's the stuff that people are willing to... They're aware in Isn't this area, a, I am able to say this. Actually, technically, yeah. it's not. Yeah. Bauman's dominant discourse. It is one of the demotic discourses. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Um, for Bauman, and I think it is important, because you know, if we do move on to the political thing, oh, yeah. for, de- for Bauman, the dominant discourse is the discourse of the local authority. So you know, that's the dominant one, and you've got to speak that if you want to engage politically. Yeah. This is one of the demotic discourses. But it's a it's predominant one. I mean, yeah. it is a widespread one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, predominant one. <laughs> yes. Good, good point. Um, so on that note then, before we turn to your specific case studies, um, another word that we haven't really brought up here is difference. Yep. And that was quite key in your keynote last night. After this, yes. Setting up a distinction between diversity and difference. So it's maybe helpful Perhaps to speak to that before we get to Highgate and to Hansworth. Yes. Um, the point I think I was making within the keynote last night was to use and to draw on some of the history of the debate around race and ethnicity in order to see how that then affects the way in which we talk about religion. And within the discourse around race and ethnicity, you find it also in gender and sexuality and other things. The distinction between difference, um, which puts two groups apart on either side of a boundary and a barrier, and that sort of very clearly separates and puts people into categories. So, you know, you have the black community, you have the Asian community, etc. And then, you know, within an area like Hansworth, you've got the riots and things that sort of reinforce some of that, as opposed to a discourse of diversity, which recognises that there are understandings of identity, there are issues that cross-cut. So while you may have the Caribbean community, you may have the Asian community, they could both be Muslim. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, they could share a particular interest in a particular sport or whatever. They, you know, there's all sorts yeah. of things that cross-cut those. And, and at that level, you're talking a different kind of uh, way of understanding the neighbourhoods. So. Yeah. So diversity is, uh, as it, it's a useful concept for recognizing heterogeneity, whereas um, difference is sort of siloed homogeneity. It is, yes. But I, I think one of the other points that is worth mentioning if you talk about things like multiculturalism um, is that simply increasing the silos, the number of silos, yeah. 
the number of differences that you can talk about doesn't take you to diversity yeah. in that sense. The, the, the concept of our diversity I'm interested in is one that is fluid, one that is constantly changing as you're looking at it, that can be reconfigured and reconstructed. You have to talk it into existence in yeah. some ways. You're, you're constantly remoulding it. Mm. Uh, it's that ability to sort of reframe it in different ways depending on context which in some senses takes you back to the situation of belief. It, you know, yeah. Where you are depends yeah. how you look at it Absolutely. and what happens with it. So so let's jump straight into a few situations then. Yep. Let's, um, Highgate and Hansworth. Hansworth. Um, yes. And presuming you know, we've got listeners all over the world. So they, so they've they no Birmingham, idea of so this. <laughs> yes, let's that start makes with sense. Birmingham. Yep. Okay, let's start with Birmingham. Um, Birmingham, second city in the UK unless you come from Manchester. <laughs> um, it has a sort of long industrial history, um, but it also has a long history of immigration that goes back to the Irish in the 19th century and then through um, into the 20th century with the Caribbean community, the Asian community. So yeah, it is a city of immigrants yeah. and industry that sort of they've built up together. As various sort of neighbourhoods around um, the city. One of the things about Birmingham is that it was in itself a relatively small town, but that has just swallowed villages. So there are very clear neighbourhoods, um, and to some extent it doesn't follow the sort of traditional model of an inner city and an outer estates and things. They're, they're, they're more mixed up, but okay. that each neighbourhood actually has an identity of its own. So the two neighbourhoods that I was have been most involved with and form the core of the book. One is called Highgate, which is just to the south of the city. That was uh, a very clear sort of slum area, lots of terraced housing originally. And in the 1960s, 70s, there was a very large Bangladeshi community started to move into that area. And because of the Bangladeshi community, that was the neighbourhood that was chosen to be the site of the first mosque, purpose-built mosque within the city that's now become the central mosque. When I was working in the neighbourhood in the 1990s, the whole area had been demolished, the slums had been removed, and new housing built. So the Bangladeshi community had moved out, and a Caribbean and poor white um, community had moved in from other parts of the city. So the mosque itself really didn't connect with the neighbourhood. Mm, it became peripheral. I use the phrase, you know, it turns its back. Mm. And actually the back entrance is the one that goes onto the neighbourhood. The front entrance looks out over the inner ring road and to Spark Brook, which is the Muslim area, opposite. But the other big religious um, community there, or building there, um, is St. Augustine's Church, which is a traditional Anglo-Catholic church set up originally to serve the slum. And you know, it has a very strong and very powerful history in the neighbourhood. But in recent years, um, the population that used to go to that church again has moved out. Uh, most of the people coming in come in from outside. It holds classical concerts. It, it sort of caters for an audience that really is not of that neighbourhood. Yeah. So as you walk around the neighbourhood, uh, what you find is that people very antagonistic towards religion and people look at these buildings um, you know they're seen almost oppressively yeah. 
you know, this is the phrase that came up most often is this is not of us. You know, they're not ours. They're not. You know, they're alien in one frame or another. And that picks up one of the things that I found really interesting there was that the people were not distinguishing between Muslim and Christian. Yeah. All religion was negative. Outside of you know, for others, it really didn't connect with us, and so that you know, that's where I pick up sort of a sense of difference. Yeah. But the difference is the difference between religion and non-religion. Because it's juxtaposed quite nicely by there's the Baptist church in yes. the as well. Yeah, there's a very small uh, modern Baptist church that if you talk to the local um, population. They will. Dis- they know that as the community centre, yeah. and it's very widely used. And you know, but they don't really think of it as a church. Um, and you know, I noted Google Maps also describes it as the Highgate Community Centre, yeah. but it is a Baptist congregation. Um, but that does draw on the local people. Mm. But people don't see it as a church. Mm. So you know, so that's Highgate. The other area I studied, which I've already mentioned, Hansworth, where you've got all these different communities coming in, living together. And in the middle of Hansworth is the Soho Road, which runs from the centre of Birmingham out here to Wolverhampton. And you go along that road, and you've got um, your Rastafarian cafe, you've got a Gurdwara, you've got a Buddhist temple, you've got the parish church just off, you've got an evangelical um, church that's been built just behind this thing. You've got the Polish grocers. You've got, you know, all the way down that road, you've got mm. one religious institution after another, after another, after another. Um, that, you know, you can see visually. Yeah. Um, although the Gurdwara dominates, they own a large chunk of the southern half of the road. But, you know, all the way along, that, that's diversity. And the, and the photographer, Liz Hingley, had a, a project called, was it Under Gods? Um, Yes. It's all online, and I'll try and link it to it from the yes. uh, podcast so that people can yes. see. Yeah, the no, they're wonderful images, and she spent a lot of time in that neighbourhood just sort of talk, listening to the people. Um, but you know, what I found there, just talking to people, is this sense, I call it a sort of sense of diversity. Diversity was the core of the discourse. That you know, It came out in a number of things. When people were stood in front of the Gurdwara or the temple or whatever, they owned it. This is our temple. This is our... Even if they weren't part of that, you know, there was a sense that this is part of Hansworth and this is important, Hansworth. But the other thing you get is people, you know, looking for other means, other kinds of identities, you know, uh, talking about their neighbours and things. And yes, you know, we've got Muslims living on one side, we've got Hindus living on the other, but we all go to the same school and we meet up at um, they uh, gate and things, and yeah, that's finding other kinds of identities to bring people together. Yeah, um, and it, it's a real um, illustration of Vessendorf's commonplace diversity. It's that again, I mentioned the ubiquity of diversity. Yep. Assumption that you'll be different from me, and you'll have your own practice, and that's groovy. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so that's the sort of distinction I draw and pick up within the book, um, within you know, using the two neighbourhoods, in a sense, to just sort of make that clear distinction between difference and diversity. Um, we're, 
we've already spoken for 22 minutes here. Right. Um, we're we're up. Uh, Sorry about that. No, no that's exactly <laughs> um, But just to, to speak to... See, we've got the context there, um, two contrasting contexts, and we've got two quite different discourses on diversity happening there. Um, so what does this... If, if you wanted to sort of sum up the rest this of the book, book. Yeah, like, <laughs> two minutes... Um, um, yeah. I'm not going to sum up the rest of the book. Yeah. The, the other things I go on to talk about in the book is the way um, public events, so things like the Chinese New Year, Visaki yeah. um, um, celebrations, etc., that are managed by the authorities, have an impact again on the sort of way people think about diversity and things, and that does move much more into Bauman's dominant discourse. Yeah. Um, because that's the local authority discourse. I just wanted to pick up, it's, I've published a couple of papers since, um, and I think it sort of gives another sort of view on the um, paper that I gave here uh, as the keynote speech here. What I was looking at was very much sort of public discourse, what people are prepared to say in public when other people are around and things. And there is some work that's being done through... Um, the Department of Geography in uh, Sheffield that is looking at prejudice and the sustainability of prejudice and that if you talk to these very same people in private, in an interview, what you will pick up is still a very strong discourse of difference and the difference between myself and a prejudice against the other. And I'm now beginning to be interested, really, in the way in which those two kinds of discourse, and again, it comes back to some of the thinking around situational belief, but how people can sustain both of those. And there is this assumption that one, the public or the private, has to be right, one has to be wrong, rather than the sense that each has its place and is a discourse that is suitable for a particular context. so if we sort of move forward in that sense to something like Brexit and the political debate uh, and the shock that people had, that it doesn't take much to scratch below the sort of the national consensus on diversity and you know, areas and things to uncover some of that discourse of prejudice. Mm-hmm. I think there is some quite interesting and important work to be done in looking at how those two sets of discourses work, both within individuals yeah. and sort of more publicly within society. And, yeah. you know, if the purpose of the keynote was to say, we need to be talking to politicians, yeah. we need to be finding a language that allows us to explain the complexity, complexity of religion. I mean, diversity, for example, doesn't just happen in neighbourhoods. Yeah. Increasingly, individuals are diverse in their religious affiliations and identities. How we can talk about that complexity in a way that enables politicians, the media, to actually have a more informed and helpful debate about the place of religion in society. Yeah. And that, you know, I think we've got a long way to go. It might be an impossible task... Uh, that's really what I was saying 
where we've got so much prejudice, where we've got complex situations, how do we talk about that publicly? Mm. And you do a great job of, rather than saying in your book that there is, this is how these people yeah. conceptualize <laughs> religious diversity. You know, you map, you map but the multiple discourses, discourses of course. There is a, there's a diversity <laughs> See, of discourses. And yeah, you, inevitably. What you can do is yeah. try and present that multiplicity in a way that isn't too baffling. <laughs> Yes, um, perhaps. It's <laughs> yeah, always the, always the uh, challenge. Change. Yes. Um, so the question that I, I'd actually been waving my hand yesterday to ask, but I was I was between <laughs> Suzanne and Richard. So as researchers who are interested in religion, we tend to look at social situations through uh, religion-tinted lens in that right. sense, because it's yep. what we're interested in. What can this tell Don't me about the category of religion? Um, but... It seems to me that some of those dynamics, the, the, the sort of insider-outsider thing that's going on in Highgate, you know, the, these communities are not of us, yep. or Handsworth, these communities are definitely of us. us. Um, do we have to use the religion word to understand what's going on in those situations? Does it introduce a level of obfuscation? Could we describe the discourses without the word religion? Um, I certainly think you can, we can describe them without the word religion. Uh, in some ways, um, I always feel torn because you always brought back to the word religion. Yeah. Um, if you do go back to something like the contemporary Western um, ethnography, and I yeah, actually, I, I want to get away from the word religion because yeah. I think we're talking about a whole series of different practices and ideas and things. But what's co- the point, in a sense, of the um, discourses of diversity is that religion is a part of the language that everybody uses and we need to recognize that it is already part of the debate I think there are two ways in, you know, two things particularly that are interesting and important on that one is this sense that um, increasingly in a society such as Birmingham People are turning to religion as their primary form of identity, mm. at least in public. Um, and Hingley does make the point, you know, when she's working on the Soho Road, people no longer say, I'm Pakistani, I'm Bangladeshi, whatever. They say, I'm Muslim, I'm Hindu, and that's mm. the identity. So we are working in a world where actually religion is yeah. part of people's own construction of their identity. Yeah. So we, we can't ignore it in that sense. You wouldn't be doing the actual discourses just as you would be ripping an aspect. Yeah, yeah, basically. Um, and just interestingly on that, I mean, what has been found in uh, a lot of the conversations I've had in Birmingham is increasingly, uh, if you talk to people who are not religious, religion as a word actually uh, brings up images of Islam. Yeah. Islam is now the sort of archetypal religion and when people talk about religion is Islam, they're thinking of not Christianity. That's a change. Um, but I think the other side of that um, is that we've got to we've got to recognise a, a whole series of behaviours, of identities, of practices that are very important to people, um, and that change as they move across the world you, know, we, you can see the transformations as they merge they ex- 
interact, juxtapose with other practices from other places, but where people are engaging with the other, in with a capital O, yeah. um, spirits, gods, ancestors, the dead, ghosts, whatever, you know, that is actually, you, you can't ignore that part. I mean, we've almost sort of got into this situation. Um, I think it's Grace Davy who says one of the problems of British society is that we've lost the art of talking about religion. We don't have a language in which to be able to talk about the religious. And has been secularized. It has been secularized too far. Um, and therefore, you, when we are faced again with a complexity of religion, actually the media, society at large, doesn't have the understanding to be able to do that. And I think that is, again... Um, one of the responsibilities of the religious studies community is to provide a language that is not religious language, but is a language about religion that enables society at large to actually have a sensible conversation about it. Absolutely. And we could just hope that um, some people would listen to this podcast and provide (laughs) with the uh, religious studies community, and I think they would get a really good solid introduction to the complexities um, of this topic and some of the real challenges that we face researching it and the interesting and innovative ways that you've approached it. So thanks so much, Martin, for joining us. Thank you very much. Great pleasure. Thanks so much for that, Chris, and indeed, Martin. Oh, you're very welcome, David. You're very well. I enjoyed that a great deal. Yes, and I thought it was important to get a, you know, because religious diversity is quite a hot topic it's quite a politically hot topic um but it was important to get a uh, a scholarly um and methodologically rigorous and theoretically um inclined interview on that rather than you know something a bit more you know like oh interfaithy that kind of thing yes yes indeed martin does that very well and also um i would direct listeners to my interview with martin from a few years ago on uh situational belief which you may also find interesting Absolutely. Yes, we you taught that actually on the uh, theories of religion course here at Edinburgh last year, didn't you? I and did, uh, yes. and the, and some of my students this year have been uh, reading Stringer. Certainly, it's been their, their extended reading list. So you know, it's good to good to see his his ideas are quite accessible in that sense, and they're worthwhile. Well. That that belief, uh, situational belief book that he did, I can't remember the title. Contemporary Western Ethnography and, and the, the Definition, Definition of Religion, religion. <laughs> um, is an excellent book. It it's packs a lot of theory into 95 pages or whatever it is. It's, yeah. it's, <laughs> there's a lot to teach in it. There's different levels of discourse, the idea of situational belief, the whole way of applying this to um, rebuilding kind of theories of religion from the ground up. There's quite a lot in it that you can teach in it, and it's but it's very accessible at the same time. Yeah. Um, next week, um, so we've already heard I'm doing interview next week, it's uh, another in our Socrel series, and it's with Naomi Thompson. Um, he's done some very interesting work um, with youth groups and the, the um, interviews on religion, youth, and intergenerationality, which are important themes in the contemporary sociology of religion. So we're looking forward to that. Indeed. Um, other than that, of course, you can find us in the meantime on social media, on your Google Pluses, your Twitters, your uh, Facebooks, your iTuneses, and YouTubes. And the YouTubes. Uh, you can support this uh, 
podcast by using our Amazon affiliate links. That's .co.uk.com and .ca. Um, and that will support the project at no extra cost to yourself. So do please consider dragging that link into your, um, your links bar and using it in future. But other than that, uh, Chris, can you sign us out, please? Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.